News. 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 New York City. F A Q. It took almost five years after killing Eric Garner on the streets of Staten Island for NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo to begin a 10-day trial, if that's the word for it. It's a departmental hearing where the proceedings are open, but thanks to a new interpretation of a 50-year-old civil service law, the result will technically be secret to preserve the officer's privacy. The department discovered that new way to keep secrets just months after Garner's death. As Mayor de Blasio kept delaying any sort of resolution, hiding behind the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's decision to decide whether or not to charge Pantaleo with the federal crime after a Staten Island grand jury declined to charge him in 2014, New York City Controller Scott Stringer stepped up in 2015 and issued a $5.9 million check to Garner's family that he said was in the best interest of all parties. The police union strongly disagreed. Meantime, Pantaleo has remained on the force, awaiting this trial, and as the U.S. attorney's decision is due on July 17th, the anniversary of Gardner's death, the stakes at the trial of one police plaza are very low. So we have a Civilian Complaint Review Board acting as a sort of ersatz prosecutor making the case against Pantaleo, and the question is whether this was a chokehold, as it appears to be on the video, or what the NYPD calls a seatbelt method. At the end of this trial, the police commissioner... James O'Neill can accept the verdict or, just like in a real court, discard it and just do whatever he wants. Even if the judge rules against Pantaleo before the feds decide and Commissioner O'Neill then upholds the verdict and recommended punishment, the most Pantaleo faces is losing his job and having vacation days docked. So Christina Correga, law enforcement reporter for ABC, has been at the trial for two of its first three days. Uh, she's heard an NYPD inspector in charge of police academy recruitment testifying that this was a chokehold, the city's own medical examiner doing the same. And she's joining us for the second Just Us episode of FAQ NYC. And also here are Professor Christina Greer, courts reporter Victoria Bekempis, and producer Alex Brooklyn. Uh, Christina, welcome. Which Christina? Yeah. Welcome all Christina. <laughs> Good point. Sorry, Professor. Uh, Christina C., uh, what have you been saying? So today was day three of the Pantaleo departmental trial hearing proceeding. I'm not sure what words are being thrown around, but it's technically a trial, um, as you said, Harry. And um, today we heard from the CCRB's um, last witness, which was the senior medical examiner for the OCME, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner's Office, and she testified that she found and concluded for the first time in of the 4,000 autopsies that she's ever performed, she put the word chokehold into her findings. And she said that because it was also her first time having video evidence to show the actions that led to this Gar Eric Garner's death, that it was a chokehold placed on his neck. And the findings were that he died of a chokehold or a neck hold. It was a trigger result to the cascade effect of his asthma, and then he ultimately died from that. Now, are chokeholds uh, illegal or legal within the NYPD 
purview of what is allowed. So from what we understand, since 1993, chokeholds were banned from the NYPD. Since then, they've been um, thrown around as accusations hundreds of times every year. There was a recent report that showed that hundreds of times each year, since I want to say 2012, they they have been a report of an allegation of a chokehold used um, on a civilian. And almost none of those were substantiated, and almost all the ones that were substantiated were either reversed or there was minimal punishment is what the Times found about that. It's not quite legal or illegal, right, because this is just the NYPD patrol guide. So that, that, you know, if the police were a paramilitary organization, they take that very seriously. But that's not actually that there there is a law saying, you know, officers cannot use chokeholds. It's just a question of what, according to the department, officers are allowed to do. Right, right. I mean, it's supposed to be a form of restraint that they're trained to use. Um, The form that Daniel Pantaleo's attorney, Stuart London, is saying in court is that he used a seatbelt method or maneuver um, where the right arm goes underneath the um, civilian's right arm and then the left arm goes across the civilian's chest like a seatbelt and you're supposed to bring the body to the ground. Eric Garner was a larger man than Daniel Pantaleo is. And if you see the video, you know, Pantaleo's taken off his feet. He's put, they're both, they crash into the the plexiglass of the store. Mm-hmm. And then they ultimately end up on the ground. And during that tussling, Pantaleo's arm is still locked around Eric Garner's neck. And that's where the chokehold, the compressions that the medical examiner found, that's when it happened. Whether it was two seconds, three seconds, four seconds is not determined. But based on the evidence that the medical examiner found, there were hemorrhaging in his neck, there were hemorrhaging in his eyes, all evidence of a form of a chokehold. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I was trying to understand and based upon your coverage of this was, so on the one hand, we have the, you know, that there was a chokehold. But on the other hand, his lawyer is claiming, oh, it was a seatbelt hold. Didn't something come up with regard to training and, uh, you know, the officer saying that he was trained in the rightful form of a, a choke hold or something? Explain something, – something like that happened. Yeah. So yesterday, day two um, of the trial, the CCRB lawyers called the one of the um, training officers from the police academy. And that officer said that, yeah, we do train our cops to do a seatbelt maneuver starting since 2011. Daniel Pantaleo has been on the job since 2008. And then he was trained again in 2010 or nine. I can't remember exact date to be a plainclothes officer. And that seatbelt method was not a part of the police academy's training at the time. So that um, commanding officer ultimately told the court, like, there's no record of him being trained by us in this seatbelt method. So where did he learn the seatbelt method? I don't know. You know. And has Pantaleo ever said where he learned it? We've never heard Pantaleo's words ever. And it's unclear if we're going to hear his words even at this trial. Um, Stuart London, his lawyer, is still determining whether he'll call him to testify on his own behalf. Based on what you've seen thus far, do you think that he will take the stand? I think he may. I think in this case, because the circumstances are very minimal, you know, losing vacation days, maybe getting fired, and then we won't know what the results are because of all the secretiveness of it all. If he has nothing to lose, pretty much, then I think he's going to take the stand to explain himself. Like, where did you learn this method and how? Can you just explain to our listeners, so you are at this trial that's an open trial, but the ver- or whatever this is, 
hearing, but the verdict will be secret, so you will no longer be in the courtroom, and we as as citizens of New York won't know the final verdict? That part, I'm, we're all trying to figure out how are we going to actually learn what is going to happen. Because in a normal court proceeding, when you're in a criminal courtroom or even a civil courtroom, you know, the judge or the jury will come back with their verdict and we'll all hear it in an open courtroom. That's why the term proceeding or hearing is just so murky. And the fact that it's the civilian um it's the CCRB doing this case and not prosecutors where we could say prosecutors said blah, blah, blah. It's just such a different type of uh, proceeding that we'll figure out, I guess, we'll figure out how we're going to learn what's going to happen. Or ultimately, we'll hear Pantaleo was fired or he's still on desk duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was my, uh, my question, too, is from a practical standpoint, how do we figure out what happened? I mean, is it just going to be that next year when we're looking through the you know, the salary database that we have, are we just not going to see him show up, you know, or is it just going to kind of be like, oh, surprise, we figured it out accidentally because, you know, we saw him doing XYZ, private security at XYZ location, you know. So it's kind of crazy how this, you know, civil service law is, you know, impacting mm-hmm. one of the most basic questions about this case, which is what happens to this guy. Yeah, and I think it's really telling because – um There are some officers who have been convicted or they were acquitted of criminal charges that are still on the job or they're on desk duty or they're awaiting departmental, you know, charges. And you have to just continuously check in with DCPI, the spokespeople, to say, hey, um, what's up with so-and-so? So So I think that might be one of the jobs of us reporters to continuously ask on a daily basis maybe, hey, what's going on with Pantaleo? Right. So has has Ramsey Orta come up in the proceedings? And we know that he's the young man who actually made the, the film, or he filmed the interaction between Eric Garner and Officer Pantaleo. And we know that there were stories afterwards that, you know, he, he said he was being harassed by police. He moved to his aunt's house. He was picked up on gun charges and was in Rikers and said that he was being harassed in Rikers. So his life is definitely... Uh, not been a crystal stare at all since his interaction with Garner and Pantaleo. Has he come up at all? Um, yeah. So since you've been there, he's actually been, was the first witness that the CCRB called, and the way he was testifying was through a video conference call because he's in prison. He's serving a four year stint after pleading guilty to a gun charge and a drug charge, and. You know, while he was testifying, of course, the defense, the first thing they did was go after his criminal record, which preceded this incident back in 2014. And he explained that Eric Garner was his friend. They've known each other for five years. And he didn't witness him selling cigarettes that day that he would have probably bought from him that day as well. So when he was recording, he knew that it was something that was problematic. He knew something was going to happen. And he testified to that um, during the court proceedings. His life has been turned upside down. And the thing that I don't think a lot of people remember is that Ramsey Orta's video was not the first um, video that was seen. There were other people who shot video. There were two other videos, one from the perspective inside of the beauty supply store. And that young lady whose name escapes me right now, she has a pending lawsuit against the NYPD because she was she felt she was being retaliated against as well. Um, There was another gentleman who took a video of the incident from by the sidewalk perspective, I think more towards the street. So you had three different angles of this 
one incident, but Ramsey Orta's video that started with the interactions of them chatting back and forth. You see Eric Garner telling the cops, listen, I had enough. You guys are always harassing me. He had the full beginning, the middle, and the end of the incident. So his video, it came up actually very interestingly because if you ever saw the video footage, it's it has the New York Daily News logo at the bottom. And he sold that video to the New York Daily News and he admitted that he got he's been getting royalties from that video and he said he's earned up to $20,000 from this footage every time somebody clicks it he gets a check you know so things like that came up during the trial as well right so how is the judge seeming to uh, uh, respond um, over the first three days she seems to be more or less listening to what everybody is saying but I think ultimately she just wants to she wants to evaluate all the evidence, and the evidence is the video. So it doesn't even matter what Ramsey Order's criminal history is over the last 10 years. She's just like, you know, I get it. You know, whenever the defense would repeat a question and try to, like, beat a dead horse about his criminal conviction or the fact that he lied to a, a judge before, you know, those little nuances mean nothing to the judge. And she was, she said a couple of times, okay, move on. And answered an ax. She, she kind of just wants to get through everything. And there's no jury here. No, this is just a judge, uh, which they call her the deputy commissioner and not judge, but she is a judge. She is um, a judge. I've I believe she was in Brooklyn before she became a deputy commissioner of the CCRB. So she'll be making the ultimate decision, like a bench trial, that this is technically not. And why is this happening outside of the NYPD? I'm just so confused as to why we're in this weird space. Because we're not really in a courtroom. We're not in the NYPD where they're handling it internally. We're in this external civilian complaint review board. But how is it here I'm I'm just I I yeah, how are we here? And it's weird because it's also inside of police headquarters, right? Right. It's all of these particular elements that scream that this should be something where it's public and we right. should know the end result, but somehow the laws are telling us that we won't know what's really going on. It's just very strange. I have a theory about this that goes back to Rudy Giuliani leading the riot. Uh, where the police officers went from outside City Hall to over the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, shouting slurs, a lot of off-duty cops drunk, um, when they were trying to form the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And this was this epic battle, and the same unions that are very upset that Pantaleo is being charged and have offered these technical explanations for what a chokehold really is and isn't, and you couldn't understand otherwise, that um, these guys had this epic fight to not have this level of this layer of oversight in the CCRB, and they lost, and it was established, and it's been hamstrung ever since. So it, it can investigate, uh, but its investigators are roughly 12-year-olds for the most part, like first job out of college sort right. of thing. Um, they, can, uh, th- they can bring charges, and they, they can get to this sort of departmental trial, and then they can hand whatever they find to the commissioner, and the commissioner can do whatever he likes with that information. So it's this sort of long war view where, where at every point, you know, like the, the Janet song, it's just, it's control. Um, and the department has managed to sort of keep control over all these proceedings. So now we're having a sort of trial that'll have a sort of verdict that won't be public. Technically, we'll never know it to decide whether or not somebody followed the procedure in the patrol guide, which incidentally, 
why that isn't online Wikipedia style, so we can see every time there's a change to it as a transparent document. I've asked people about that and never gotten a totally straight answer. The, the department has managed to sort of maintain control of its own proceedings. And the bottom line is if crime is low enough and there's only a terrible thing every so often, everyone seems okay with that deal. But this, especially with the reform mayor like Bill de Blasio, I think, is really sort of exposing the, the space between talking about police accountability and transparency and, 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 and having it. Huh. I mean, it's interesting because I also learned that IAB, did the Internal Affairs Bureau, did their own investigation after the incident happened. And they have recommended that charges should have been brought against Pantelos since January 2015. So why the delay is the question. What, what happened between now and then? Is I There's been no answer told at the trial. It did come out at the trial, though. One of the things that I think the trial has brought up, and again, like Christina was saying, we're in this Which really... Which Christina was saying? You! Professor, <laughs> professor. <laughs> professor. Christina G and Christina C. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things, again, about this weird space is... Uh, who actually makes the ultimate decision about Pantaleo's fate? And I think a question that a lot of people have is can, you know, can de Blasio just step in and fire him or or not? Or what's, you know, what's next? Like who ultimately can or cannot decide his fate? It sounds like the judge is going to make her decision, which we won't know. And then the commissioner of the NYPD will make his decision, which we won't know. And then we'll just like, we, it's unfortunate. We just won't know until somebody decides we have to be open, like FOIL requests got to be made. Like, it's just going to be a weird time. And when is it going to happen? And we understand that there's this deadline for the DOJ to come up with their decision if they're going to even charge Pantaleo in um, in civil court. Why is that taking five years? I have no idea. But the statute of limitation is that is on July 17th, five years to the date of Eric Garner's death. That's the limitation that the DLJ has to actually file charges for themselves to prosecute him there. And why why do you think the mayor has been so silent? Has he come up in the proceedings that you've You've been in? Um, He has not come up during um, the proceedings, I heard. I understand he did make a statement on Saturday at a a different radio show about how this has been taking too long or whatever. This is Mayor de Blasio speaking. He was just in office at the time. He should have made moves then as a new mayor, and he didn't. I mean, I don't know. The mayor, I think, has some type of ranking that he could step in and actually fire the NYPD commissioner and then fire whoever he wants, you know, but we don't know. A couple other things happened in 2014. Okay. We had the the protests after Eric Garner's killing. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, we had two police officers, um, uh, Ramos and Lou, mm-hmm. who uh, w- were shot in their car um, in an ambush. And then NYPD officers turning their backs on de Blasio. And there were all these questions about whether or not we, with, you know, this Dinkins protege there and Ooh. Democrats back in control, the bad old days were coming back. In Staten Island, it was like, are they just going to leave, abandon the neighborhood now? There was like a little informal police strike there. Right. Um, and, and you remember the police slowed down, remember? Oh, oh yeah. There was um, a situation and, and nothing nothing really happened. I mean, I think that this ties into this larger narrative that Democratic mayors are weak on crime and de Blasio would be a Dinkins-esque weak on crime 
reputation, similar to what you were talking about, you know, when you mentioned Giuliani, I don't know if our listeners remember, but, you know, when Giuliani essentially had the bullhorn and was encouraging police officers to, drunken police officers to essentially riot, that was when Mayor Dinkins was in office and his political rival was the one who was inciting this potential violence. It's interesting that you think of, you talk about 2014 in general, right? Eric Garner's death filmed on camera by a civilian. Then you had Michael Brown's death. And then you had, um, you know, like you said, uh, Lou and Ramos was killed in November 2014, right? And then... A Kai Gurley was killed, and then it became this whole question of can we trust prosecutors to actually, you know, pro- investigate cases against the NYPD? Because then in 2015, or at the end of t- December 2014, the Staten Island District Attorney declined to prosecute Pantaleo for the criminal aspect of this case, right? Republican, now Congressman Dan Donovan. Yeah. Um, and in between all this, de Blasio made a point that many people felt at the time was an honorable point and many people felt was political just given the timing about giving his son, Dante, uh, the talk um, about how to deal with police officers, um, which within the NYPD, among people I've talked to, had no sympathy for for Pantaleo or even, you know, there but for the grace of God go I sense, just infuriated them that it felt, uh, they thought, opportunistic. I think de Blasio thought it was like an open and overdue conversation, but like, there was this tremendous tension between much of the department and certainly the unions and the mayor at that point. Right, but I think, I think what's, scared him politically. Oh, I I definitely think that we know that De Blasio has always had a certain fear of the NYPD. But I think it's so fascinating when you talk to black police officers who actually have to give their own sons the talk because mm-hmm. they know who their colleagues are and they know what happens to black police officers who are undercover who get shot on duty from their own police police colleagues even after they identify themselves. So I mean, I you know. Part of the problem is it's just we're trying to deal with such a rampant, insidious, calcified problem within not just the NYPD, but police departments across the country historically and in present day. And Eric Garner is this this one really shining example because so many people, so many police officers who have never been held accountable um, – got off because it's like, well, there's no evidence, right? If We only had it on camera, but we don't. And this is a, a case where not only do you have it on camera, you have it on three different cameras from three different angles, from a man who has a history with the NYPD, from a man who's who's literally telling them that he cannot breathe, and it seems for many people cut and dry, yet and still... We are almost five years, we're running against the clock five years later, and this one police officer has, he's been collecting a check, am I correct? Yeah. The entire time. Six figures. The citizens of New York have been paying a man's salary that we have witnessed strangle a man, choke a man on camera, and we're still wringing hands and hemming and hawing about what should happen. And whatever does happen, it'll be in secret. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, it's just a strange thing. And then, you know, in court, Eric Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, is there. Eric is crying from heaven because he see his mother and his family out here still trying to fight for justice for him. It's been five years, five years we've been on the front line trying to get justice, and they're still trying to sweep it under the rug. She's being comforted by the mothers of other fallen New Yorkers who have been killed at the hands of NYPD officers, such as Inez Baez, who her son, Anthony Baez, was 
choked to death by an NYPD officer back in 1994 after it was banned. And London still tried to say the same thing, that my son murdered himself, that the obesity and asthma killed him, not the police putting him on the ground, putting their feet on their back and neck, not the chokehold. The ones that commit perjury are just as guilty as the ones who murdered So the fact that the mothers have all formed around Gwen Carr during this time is very telling. It's sad to see Gwen Carr can barely be in the courtroom. She's She can't even listen to the video. She doesn't want to watch the autopsy photographs of her son's insides out. You know, it's really it, it's just. I don't know. It, it protests all day. I mean, they're out there every day supporting the families and calling for somebody for something to happen. And yet we will just be here wondering, well, is he still on the job? I don't know. Well, keep in mind, Gwen Carr has suffered a double loss, right? I mean, she Correct. not only lost her son, but then a few years later, she lost her granddaughter. And granted, it wasn't a direct relation, but we can understand that there were some pressures uh, that have been on this family, especially yeah. because there hasn't been a resolution. So because of because she has lost her son, she also ultimately lost a granddaughter as well. Right, right. One of the things I wanted to ask, since this conversation is a conversation about accountability, is you also covered the Akai Gurley case. And I think a lot of people are probably wondering – why did how did that case wind up at trial and then this case didn't? Um, you know how was it that Peter Liang was in, indicted in Brooklyn and Daniel Pantaleo was not indicted in Staten Island? So you know what I, I mean. Obviously they're very different cases, but you know how how does that the paths how how do they diverge here? So back in 2014, not only did Mayor De Blasio just get elected into office as the mayor. Ken Thompson was also newly elected for the Brooklyn District Attorney's seat. And he came in there. He wasn't going to be playing any games with police officers. He made that very clear. He was going to take cases very seriously. So when Dan Donovan, the then Staten Island District Attorney's Office's um, grand jury, did not indict Pantaleo for criminal charges, everybody looked at Ken Thompson and was like, well, what are you going to do about Akai Curley's death? Because he had gotten killed at the hands of... The accidental trigger pull, as they called it, from then cop Peter Liang, who was a rookie. And it was during a vertical patrol in the East New York Pink Houses projects. The bullet ricocheted off the wall and entered a Kai Gurley's chest and killed him. A vertical patrol mean when you go into the projects, go up to the roof and then take the stairs down just to see that the public areas are, are good. Correct. You're not supposed to really have your gun out to accidentally shoot it if nothing's happening there. Right. It made no sense why he had his gun out. That was the whole question. You know, then the whole trigger pull and the pressure came into place. It was a very technical case. And when Donovan's office did not indict Pantaleo, Ken Thompson had convened a grand jury for Peter Liang. And they ultimately indicted um, Peter Liang for manslaughter charges in February of 2015. So you, it, it depends on the leadership of said agency, I believe. And that's why um, Ken Thompson's office was able to indict Peter Liang versus Donovan's office that did not indict um, Pantaleo. Or conversely, as we were talking about right before we came on, the I'm sure Donovan had no interest as a Staten Island Republican who was looking to run for Congress, uh, you know, in, in going after a member of the NYPD. However, in almost all these cases, police don't end up getting charged because there's some perception issue, right? And these are people we're giving uniforms to 
and badges and guns and saying, you have authority to use force as needed on behalf of a larger society. And then if there's a perception matter, a perceived threat, however absurd that may be, or you're doing a police action, there's a lot of protection established there if things go wrong. With this guy Liang, this officer Liang, he had his gun out for no reason in a hall while nothing is happening. He hears a door open and he squeezes this, this heavy trigger, as, as you said, Christina. Right. Right. So it's not that easy to pull. But that aside, there's no police action. There's nothing happening there. So the basic threshold that makes it so hard to, to prosecute these cases, uh, let alone win a conviction, and most of them simply wasn't there. And even with that, I think this was a, this was a tough case, and they, they they started to figure out the right charge, and then sentencing at the end because they they did win a conviction. Yeah, I mean, in the end, um, the verdict was the that Liang was convicted of second degree manslaughter, meaning that he called he was, he acted recklessly and caused the death of a Kai girlie. That was what the verdict said. The, the jury of his peers convicted him. Ultimately, the judge. The judge decides he's not going. Well, actually, there was a recommendation from the prosecutor, Thompson himself, to sentence him to just community service. I think there was something that happened when the verdict was read. I was in the courtroom for that as well. And there was something that happened when after the verdict was read and Peter Liang put his hands into his his face into his hands and just seemed distraught. And Thompson was still sitting in the courtroom and I saw him looking at Peter Liang's reaction. And I think at that moment, if Peter Liang didn't react as if he was upset or angry, if he kept a cold composure, I think Thompson would have not recommended something so lenient. I think he saw that Liang didn't mean to have this kind of thing happen. And that's why he gave him compassion with the recommendation of no jail time. And then... um, the judge, Judge Chan, Judge Chun, he ultimately ordered um, Liang to serve 800 hours of community service, um, which is a lot of time. But you're not going to jail. You're not going to prison. You know, you're still – he had a, he got fired from the NYPD. So even though he was on the job for less – maybe a year and a half, his whole career is up in smokes. And, you know, Liang got what he got. You know, it's just what it was at the time. And Pantaleo, uh, he's how old and what's his, like, time on the job? Pantaleo, I'm not sure his age. He might be f- close to 40, not sure. But he's been on the job for quite some time. So he wasn't, like, a rookie, so it's a little right. bit different. Right, absolutely. And he was doing a police action. And he was playing clothes, you know, like, um, <laughs> you don't just graduate from the academy and go to playing clothes. You got to, like, earn your keeps to be there, you know. And from what I understand, there was a call from NYPD's headquarters that, that day that they wanted to clean up shop in Staten Island. And that was the order to clean up shop in that area because of the amount of 911 calls and 311 calls that were being made in that area. They said it was, like, well over 600 in a, t- a six-month time frame. So the orders were to clean up shop. So and that Garner, was, you know, yeah. wasn't selling Lucy's right then. Not at that moment, no. But th- that was his thing. Yeah. Not that place, not that corner, but right around there. And so, oh, here's here's a known guy we're supposed to be rousting. And yeah. he's standing there, let, let, let's do this. And right. that also somewhat explains why he is so heated about it. It's like, I'm not even doing the thing. <laughs> and here you are. Right. So... Christina, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Thank you. You've been covering the justice system and around it for a long time, right? This is five years now after I can't breathe. Yeah. And talk about the war on cops and then Black Lives Matter. We've had a presidential election. Yeah. Um, This guy, Donald Trump, who says he's a law and order man, is a 
Yeah. Okay. There's a face, but you can't see that on the radio. <sighs> Questionable. Is, is, is president now, this guy Bill de Blasio has been kicking this ball down the road for five years, will have announced for president by the time anyone's listening to this Thursday. Um, um, what are, are, are we making some sort of actual progress toward uh, – Toward reform or better systems? Are we right where we started? Just, just uh, if this is a moment to take stock, where are we at? I honestly would say that it dep- depending on the agency. Actually, no, scratch that. Wherever you are in the city of New York, it depends on the leadership of said prosecutor's office to know if there are changes. Okay, so just like back in 2014. Thompson made a change. He changed the whole dynamics on how he was going to approach how to prosecute police officers. Um, Will that same thing be done in Queens? Probably not, which is also in the middle of an election season. Staten Island. I mean, every office has a different leadership since then. And I think depending on the leader is where the change is made. So have we changed totally as a whole state? A whole country, I think we're not. We're not changing as much. And that's a shame. But it is based, it's a base, it's a case by case basis. Prosecutor by prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And DA by DA. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us. That was uh, really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And good luck covering the rest of the trial. <sighs> or hearing or proceeding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. FAQ. FAQ NYC is brought to you by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the economics of journalism. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, where we recorded this week. Special thanks to guest Christina Carrega, to Victoria Bacampus of In the Courts. And of course, Adam Camara, handsome man. As always, this episode is brought to you by me, executive producer Alex Brooklyn. And this is a special Just Us FAQ's monthly look into everything justice or criminal justice or in the courts. We're going to figure it out. Me and Victoria Bekempis are going to be rooting around the law. Yeah. In New York State. Yeah, and, you know, if there's a topic that you think you want to know more about, let us know. Slide into the DMs. 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 Carpe DM. Carpe DM. Sorry. Cuckoo sing. Slide into the carpe DM. You can't outrun the angel of death. Oy Sing. Oy Cuckoo sing. So Carpe Diem was the smash hit by the Fugs, who were like the great nope. band of New York in <laughs> no. the 1960s. Yeah. I, I give zero Fugs. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs>